down and listen to records Smell the cover, read all the verses Tell me about your favorites on vinyl and vision It's a beautiful day Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Vinyl and Vision. Here we are with episode 66, and today's very special guest is Ben Vaughn. Ben, ben Vaughn's new record, The World of Ben Vaughn, available exclusively for Record Store Day on April 23rd, 2022. Uh, what you are listening to is the lead track off of that record, In My Own Reality. And at the end of the episode, I will uh, feature a small clip of another song off of that record called Asking for a Friend. There are no official singles being released for that album uh, as of right now, so these are my choices for some of the standout tracks on that album. Uh, limited to 1,000 copies, uh, and from what he tells me, it'll be on a very cool, splattered, uh, multicolored vinyl. Exclusive to Record Store Day. It will only be available at stores that are participating uh, in Record Store Day on April 23rd, uh, which is coming up very quickly. So we encourage you, please, that if you are interested in purchasing that uh, that copy of that record or a copy of that record, contact your local uh, licensed Record Store Day realtor retailers and ask if they will be carrying it. If they don't say that they will be carrying it, if they don't know if they'll be carrying it, uh, by all means, suggest that they order a copy for you. I will do that myself. All right. So I don't want to take too too much time here in the intro. Um, I just have to let you guys know uh, a few problems happened with this uh, session. Not anything terrible, but um, essentially there were some slight noise disturbances throughout the recording of this episode. Um, something on, on Ben's end, there was some kind of scratching of a microphone or something like that. And, uh, and then there was also noise disturbances on my end over here and in my house because uh, it was actually, this was done during the day. So you might be able to hear some of that. Uh, I've done my best to kind of eliminate as much of that as I could, but it is what it is. That's what these podcasts are all about, huh? It was a great conversation with Ben. Uh, he's an extremely accomplished musician and composer and producer. Um, just so that you might, just to get, kind of give you a perspective of, uh, of some of the work that Ben's done. I mean, he's been playing music uh, in his own band, the Ben, the, the ben Vaughn Combo. Uh since the 80s. Um, he's an accomplished solo musician, has been released a number of records uh, as a solo artist, and um, he's an accomplished producer. He, uh, just to name a few names off the top of my head, I know that he's produced Ween, which was pretty pretty interesting, the 12 Country Golden Greats, uh, Los Straight Jackets, um, there's some uh, Nancy Sinatra, I believe, uh, Charlie Feathers, and, uh, and many, many more. There's too many for me to list. He's also a accomplished TV uh, composer. He has composed uh, music for Third Rock from the Sun, That 70s Show, and uh, a few others, and a few other movies as well. So, really great career. I mean, he's just a wonderful uh, and a knowledgeable person about the music industry in general, and uh, obviously music history. He's a huge music fan. So it was a wonderful opportunity to get to speak with him. And I thank him very much for taking the time, and I thank you very much for taking the time to come and check out this show and listen to us. Um, Ben's choice, so the Sir Douglas Band's Texas Tornado, uh, led by the iconic Doug Somm. 
And uh, if you're not familiar with that record or anything else by Doug Som, kind of like myself, I encourage you to go check some of it out because it's interesting stuff. Um, stay tuned here, and obviously you'll hear selections from Texas Tornado uh, and, uh, and, and our opinions and our, uh, our analysis of some of those songs. Thank you again for tuning in. We ask that you please do all the things you do with the internet. Like, share, subscribe, comment, rate, review, and all those types of great dandy things. It helps us out, and we appreciate it. If you care to support our show financially, uh, you can visit our website, psychicstatic.net, and any purchase you make through that website helps us uh, keep the show rolling along. And now, uh, without further ado, here is the show. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Hey, Ben. Hey, you sound good. So do you. We're, we're like FM disc jockey kind of guys or something. Uh, you, you more so than me, I'm pretty sure. Well, you, you, you have the, the, the basso profundo going on. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard buttery smooth. I've heard, uh, you know, NPR-like. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> hmm. Are you uh, in the Relay Shack? I am. Cool. How is that? What is the Relay Shack exactly? The Relay Shack is uh, in the Mojave Desert. I'm out here in the Mojave Desert in uh, outside of 29 Palms, California. It's my house. I bought a house back in 1998 when I was doing TV music. I was um, escaping to the desert every weekend to the point where I was going to go broke with hotel costs. So I decided to buy a place and I do, and I do my show. Out here in the relay shack where all my records are yeah uh what's your what's your collection look like it's um wow i don't know if it's valuable <clears throat> because i buy a lot of records at thrift stores and uh a lot of them are beat up i play them a lot so that they lose they you know they they, they de decrease in value every day because i play them so much um, hmm. so, so I don't know if it will be considered a valuable collection, but it's a varied collection. I mean, I have thousands and thousands of records. Um, I've been a, a record fanatic since I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So you used to actually have records from when you were a kid. Oh yeah. 45s and LPs. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, you're obviously probably not interested in selling those, but, I, but I think that they probably would have some value. I mean, depending on the titles, of course, stuff like that. Yeah, the condition of them is a little questionable, and I don't e I don't even have a great turntable because some of my records are so beat up it would destroy a good needle. <laughs> right. So, um, <clears throat> in, in an audiophile sense, in 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 a um, OCD record collector sense, um, I would imagine some people might be disgusted by my collection, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah. it works for me. That's all I know. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it works for the people who listen to my radio show. So, yeah, I've been listening to it. Um, it sounds great. I mean, like I, I can't tell what what you're playing in what format. You know, I mean, usually, you know, you play an old forty five, and you kind of tend to hear some crackles and hiss. And I haven't heard any of that. Oh, it's on. I think if you listen a little closer, you'll hear it. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. When I when I'm listening in headphones when I'm doing the show, I'm like, ooh, I should probably get a better copy of that one. 
Yeah. Well, you know, hey, some some of it's you can't find, right? Some of it kind of tends to be a little rare. Yeah, that's that's becoming more and more true. So I wanted to ask you about the the record that you have being released for Record Store Day. Sure. When when was your last record released? When when was the last thing you did? The last record I did was a solo acoustic record called Imitation Wood Grain and Other Folk Songs which came out about oh, I'm guessing 3 years ago or maybe 4 years ago. Okay. And I've heard uh, I've heard that one. I listened to it. Yeah, yeah, that that was um a solo acoustic record. And this one I played all the instruments myself on. Um this is kind of like going back to my recording roots actually when I first started uh experimenting with tape recorders and recording music. I was a teenager and I would play all the instruments myself because I was really in love with that first McCartney album. Yeah. And and Emmett Rhodes, that that record really influenced me and Dave Edmonds like in 1970 or 71. I hear you knock and that whole album uh, that 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 song is on. He plays all the instruments himself. So that was my first impulse. I started out as a drummer, so it was pretty easy for me to approach that and get good results because it, I could play drums, you know. Hmm. A, a lot of people have to learn how to play drums to make a one-man band record. I went the opposite way. I had to learn how to play guitar, bass, and <laughs> lead guitar and and keyboards and stuff in order to do it. Oh, okay. And um so this record, I've done a few one-man band records. It's a great process. It's really um it's really an interesting process. And I recorded this during lockdown, so I couldn't even record with other people if I wanted to. You know, it's pre-vaccine oh, okay. when I was cutting this thing. So I couldn't even, you know, invite someone over to do a, a harmony vocal even. You know, it was, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to believe that things were that intense at one point during the pandemic, but it really was that intense. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, people were not visiting each other. People were not, socializing at all and what seems stranger is that it just it doesn't even seem like it existed at this point (laughs) i think it's a good thing i think that maybe human beings we have a natural ability to uh, tune things tune unpleasant trauma out and move forward Hmm. it's it's pretty impressive because i don't i don't really want to sit around and think about that (laughs) right you know like why would i want to and the fact that it seems like involuntarily we have moved on and it's like it's you, we know what happened, but like that memory is like you know you reach you reach around to find it, and you can't. It's, it's like you can't find it or grab it. Right. It, we we uh, we have uh, effectively moved on. And yeah, when I, and when I you look so. back at when you look back at your at your behavior and the behavior of of uh, you know your friends, people close to you, it's weird to think about how intense that was. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we all suffered like two years of trauma. It was crazy. Yeah. In, in addition, yeah. in addition to coming like you know on on the heels of the uh, the Trump presidency. Oh my God! Yeah, well, just when you didn't think things could get any weirder, you know, yeah. uh, like and not and not even like it, it doesn't even matter whether you think it's good or bad. It was you have to admit it was weird. Certainly, it <laughs> you was know? certainly. If nothing if else, it was even weird. if you're a pro-Trump person, you're going to have to admit that that presidency was weird. <laughs> it, it, was, it was like none other. Yeah, it broke every rule, every yeah, rule for and sure. Apparently, it's still doing it. 
uh, even even with him not in the White House, it's still happening. But uh, yeah, um, so so I had a you know I, I lockdown initially was a great experience for me because I wasn't my my creative flow wasn't being interrupted by social engagements and gigs and phone calls from people wanting to get together or anything like that. There was you couldn't even be antisocial because there was not, no social activity to be anti towards. Hmm. It was like literally my calendar all of a sudden was empty. Right. And I had a bunch of song ideas that, that were coming to me during that time. I had planned to go into a real studio with, with a band and cut these songs, and that immediately became an impossibility. So I went back to the one-man band approach and... Hmm. And cut this record, so I'm playing everything on it, which was which was a great experience. It was uh, it was nice to have to fine tune some of my skills. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that's interesting. I, I've never had good experience doing the the one man band thing. I I just I don't know. Maybe it's just because I, I get tensed up and I get a little too nervous, and I I've always found it very frustrating. Yeah, well, I I was so young when I first started doing it that I never had any. Um, nervousness about it i was just so eager and, and enthusiastic that i was actually able to push record and then listen to something back <laughs> just that yeah. that fact alone uh my enthusiasm for it when when i was a teenager so i it, it's one of those things i guess when if you do it when you're really young um it it isn't hard or it isn't there's no anxiety because you're just flying you know hmm. and so when i approach it now it, I'm, I'm kind of uh, going back to my initial excitability about it. I'm very happy when I'm recording. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, you must, yeah, you're that type. So, because there are people that are, that love to be in the recording setting and love doing it. And then there are some people like me where just kind of, it's, it's terrifying because you're just kind of worried about making mistakes and how long is this going to take and how many takes do I have to take? And it's just kind of just, just anxiety building, you know? Yeah. I, I kind of go into a non-thinking state. Like making music for me is not that intellectual. Like when I'm writing, it's interesting because uh, it's hard to explain really. I, uh, some people are analytical and some people are very conscious creators. You know, their conscious mind is, is, is what they're using as they're creating. And I'm the opposite way. Like songwriting, you know, it sounds like a cliche, you know, I am the conduit. You know, I'm an antenna and I'm just picking up signals and, you know, that kind of stuff. Hmm. But it's really kind of true in my sense, in, in my case. And I'm, uh, songwriting comes to me when I'm either walking or driving my car. And these songs just arrive and they're fully written very, you know, pretty quickly in my mind. And then I pick up a guitar and figure out what the chords are behind it. But the song's already written before I even get anywhere near an instrument. Wow. And it's always been that way uh, since I was a kid. I'll be walking home from school and get a song idea. They weren't good songs yet, but they were, you know, they were coming to me. I was being visited by, you know, the muse, I guess is what you would call it. And, uh, and recording is also kind of like more of a visceral thing. I don't really think I just go with my instincts and uh, music is kind of uh, flowing inside me. And I'm just trying to catch up with, with the ideas, trying to catch them and get them down on tape or catch a song and get the lyric, you know, get the lyrics written down before I forget them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
I guess uh, that that process has become a little easier for you now with the with technology being what it is. I mean, I, I, I imagine you have uh, multiple little doodads to to you know kind of quickly record things on the fly. I do, I do. Well, I used to. What I used to do is uh, pull over my car and then go to a payphone and call my machine at home and sing the song into the machine. Uh, so I've been doing. I've been using whatever technology has been there, like the state of the art at that time. Right. Um, I, uh, I, I, I would use to capture these ideas. So I've always been chasing ideas that come to me and they, and they, and they come to me randomly. So, um, no, I told you that I haven't really, I haven't been able to hear this new record yet, but I, I have seen the one single you have, you have this one single out right now, dancing in my mind. Yeah. That's not on the album. Actually, I didn't that's think a, it was okay. Yeah. That's a standalone single. Uh, I recorded it at, during the same time as the album, but it was too different from the rest of the record because it has a lot of pixie dust, you know, fairy dust sprinkled on it as far as like synthesizers. And, you know, it's, it has an 80s uh, dance hit kind of sound to it be yeah. because, because of the lyrics. And uh, it was so different from the rest of the record that I decided to release that as a standalone single. Oh, okay. So then, uh, so then, where where does the record stand in in, in its own in its entirety? Then, like, uh, you know, I only have descriptions of these songs. Uh, like the lead single is uh, "In My Own Reality." Yeah, that's kind of a hippie uh, hippie rock, I call it. Uh. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I would have probably described dan um, "Dancing in My Mind" as, as such too, kind of like uh, almost a '60s psychedelic uh, type of song. Oh, like that's a little, little poppy, little poppy, but like a little bit of psychedelia in it, you know? Yeah, I was thinking early new new wave, early 80s new wave. But um, hmm. of course, all that stuff was influenced by Petula Clark or Dusty Springfield anyway, when you think about it. You know, as far as like the melodies of new wave music, they're very like British pop oriented. Yeah, the new, the new album has more folk and country elements to it. Um, there's a garage rock tune on there. Um, trying to think of what, what other styles I go through. There's a like kind of a noir blues tune. Right. Uh, so, so people that are familiar with uh, with your other records, um, it's kind of like uh, kind of the same in the re in regards that you cover a lot of different styles. Like you are a very eclectic person, very eclectic musician, and uh, you have all of these influences and inspirations from all of these decades of, of, you know, music that you've been, you know, either participating in by as a listener or actually as a musician, as a producer, and it all comes through in your music. That's true. Uh, the music that I have been hearing my entire life from the time I was a little kid, and I've been a music fanatic since I can remember. Um, mm. When I was six years old, my uncle gave me a Dwayne Eddy record. Twistin' and Twangin' by Duane Eddy. Mm -hmm. my, my uncle worked at RCA in Camden, uh, at that Camden, New Jersey. And at that time, RCA had, I think, 23 different factories in town. They basically owned the town. Yeah. And everyone in my family worked at RCA, and my uncle worked there. And he worked in the pressing plant. And you were able, there was a box of free records at the door when you were, at the, when you were punching out that you, you could grab. And he grabbed a copy of Twistin' and Twangin' and gave it to me. I was six years old, and that was uh, a mind blower, you know. Hmm. Uh, you know, instrumental rock and roll, uh, 
you know, and, and it was before the Beatles too. I think it was 1963 when he gave me that. So hmm. I was a rock and roll fanatic from a very early age. And I grew up in the Philadelphia area where doo-wop was huge. Still is actually. It's like, it's like a place lost in time, Philadelphia. Hmm. But I grew up, you know, I grew up right across the river from Philadelphia. And so doo-wop and uh, the Cameo Parkway stuff like Mashed Potatoes by D.D. Sharp, that, that was what was on the radio when I was growing up. Right. You know, I have a very, and when I started, you know, I started playing drums when I was 12 and I would be, I would play high school dances. And the rule was if you didn't get everyone dancing, they weren't going to invite you back. So you had, you know, it was very important that you got the beat, that you got the beat right, you know? Right. Right. But that's like the base, the basis of what, of my appreciation of music is rhythm more than anything else. And then I discovered lyrics. I started, hearing like, you know, Roger Miller or, you know, Beatles lyrics or, um, you know, in country music with Tom T. Hall and people like that, Chris Christopherson and, and oh, yeah. John, the story, John, the John storytelling, Pr- right? Yeah. John Prine, um, oh, all beautiful. these really great lyricists. And then I, 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 uh, I realized I had a knack for writing lyrics in that tradition and that, uh, that kind of changed my whole focus. I became more of a, I became a songwriter at one point, which mm. meant being being a great instrumentalist wasn't as important anymore. So I kind of stalled out. Like as an instrumentalist, I'm I'm as good now as I was when I was like 16, probably, <laughs> because I got distracted by songwriting. You know? Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, you know, it's, it's good to to have your focus. It's good to know what you're good at. You know, don't be too distracted by too many other things. Yeah, and I also have a limited range as a singer, so. If that's the case, you better be singing some good lyrics. You know, I remember somebody yeah. somebody said to me, "With a voice like yours, you you better be a good songwriter." <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. If you listen to Johnny Cash, if he was singing a bad song, it wouldn't work. You know, he he was always connected to good songs. Neil Diamond, another guy with a voice that you know didn't have a lot of range. Yeah, uh, right. And Lou Reed. I mean, of course, that was uh, that was where I was going. I was like, "Yep, yeah, Lou Reed. <laughs> yeah." These guys have interesting lyrics because probably because they had to because they knew with their limited vocal range something else had to be going on Mm, (laughs) right that led to me led me to be a songwriter because i realized wow if i if i have lyrics that really hook people uh they'll let me sing you know yeah yeah it's weird weird vocals and you know being a singer in general, like uh, I, I have my, my gripes with it because I'm not a good singer either. I, I probably, you know, suffer the same thing as I have a very pretty much a one range thing. Um, but I don't know if I would consider myself a lyricist either. So therefore, I'm kind of like, ah, I don't know if I this is this is my thing. I should just focus on, you know, backing people up. Um, but uh, going back to your record, um, I was curious. So it's coming out for Record Store Day. So there must be something special about it, uh, package-wise. Do you think? I mean, because uh, that's the, the the spectacle that is Record Store Day. Everyone's looking for the weird variants and kind of like strange colors and. Well, yeah, uh, it's a it's a limited edition. Uh, yeah. Like when it sells out, it's it's gone. You know, so um, there's a thousand copies and that's it. It'll never happen again. And yeah. it's it's on colored vinyl. And what was really cool about it is when Record Store Day. Uh, a friend of mine pitched me to record store day and they said, you should see if, if Ben Vaughn has anything. And so, so they, they contacted me and they asked if I had anything. And I said, yeah, actually I'm working on something right now. 
And they said, well, if you can get it manufactured in time, we'll go with it, you know, this year. And I was like, wow, great record store day. So immediately I was like, you know what? I, I, I'm actually going to make an LP for the first time. The last time I made a record that only came out on LP was in 1986 when I made my first album. And wow. the approach was side A, side B, you know, I'm creating an album. Um, right. And that went away when, when CDs came in, the whole side A, side B break left uh, for a long time before the revival of vinyl. So you're working on 12 songs as a collection. You just hope people hang in there for all 12. And that was, uh, you know, a learning curve for me because when I, when I get, when I buy an album, an LP, sometimes I'll listen to side one five times in a row before I, before I even turn it over. Hmm. And I've always been that way. Um, and with CDs that what, there was no side A, side B break. So, right. um, when this opportunity came up, I, I, was, I realized, wow, I'm going to make an LP. So let me choose what songs I'm going to spend time finishing here and, and envision the side A and side B break while I'm working. So I kind of had the sequence in mind. It was a great experience for me because it went back to a, uh, a talent that I had, you know, 35 years ago. It was great. And... Um... So, I mean, there's nothing, nothing too special about this record that like, you can't, like, you have to worry about giving away as far as describing what, what it will kind of look like when it comes out. Um, not so much. Um, I mean, there's a really beautiful, uh, photograph on the front cover that, that reproduced really well. It's like a piece of art hmm. and, uh, it's a, it's a desert, uh, su sunset scene, uh, but not like, uh, you know, a, a Hallmark reading card, desert sunset is there's something weird about it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and the vinyl looks really cool. It's a swirly green and yellow swirl. Oh, cool. And, uh, I guess the fact that it's a limited edition that there's, you know, there's, there will 20 years from now, there will still be only 1000 of these in the world, you know? Yeah. Um, that's probably the hook, I guess. I don't know. Um, I was just happy to to be part of it because I love Record Store Day. Have you ever been to a record store on Record Store Day? Uh, you know what? I don't think I have. Um, see, I only I only did it once, and I pulled up, and there was a line around the block at you know, like five minutes before ten a.m. Oh yeah, and I felt like getting out of my car and giving everybody a hug, <laughs> <laughs> like thank you, thank you, records, records. Yeah, <laughs> no. See, see, I, I, I'm. I'm not a very competitive person, so like, I've been kind of scoping it out little by little. I'm just like, yeah, I just like I can't compete with these people. Like these people are nuts, you know. It's just like there's certainly a, a a fanatic aspect to the people that go out on that day and wait in those lines and are looking for those really limited edition pressings and like, you know, I'm just like, I I don't I don't do that. I don't I don't like to be competitive. I just like if I if I walk into a store and I see something I like, I like to buy it. But but I understand the you know, the interest and the fanaticism about these limited edition runs. I mean, I sell records, so I mean, I understand that there's like, there's some, yeah, there's some value behind it, but there's also something kind of uh, incentive about the the uniqueness of it and the rarity of it. Yeah, yeah, it's like a print. You know, like like if some if an artist only makes one thousand prints, you know, one of one thousand, two of one thousand, you know, right. mm -hmm. and that's it. Um, 
that's a pretty cool, a pretty cool thing to have that in your hands, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so speaking of which, do you, do you have any idea of like where your record will be? Because I know that, you know, Record Store Day is international. I mean, there, there's so many stores all over the world now that, that participate and um, you only have a thousand records. Do you know where they're going to go? Um, I don't. Um, it's being distributed by a company called Think Indie. And they work very real close with Record Store Day. And, uh, you know, they're soliciting the list of independent record stores and whichever ones order it are the ones who are going to have it, you know? Mm. So I guess for people to find this record, they're going to essentially have to reach out to their local stores uh, and ask them for it, essentially. Yeah, ask if they're going to carry it, yeah. Or, oh, okay. just, or just show up on Record Store Day and hope it's there. <laughs> but, right. Which is a, a very non-competitive thing to do. <laughs> like, I, you, I would imagine you should, you know, that someone would uh, contact a record store and see if they're going to carry it. But um, hmm. yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, the record came out great and it sounds great on vinyl. Like I took it over to a friend's studio and he's, he is a fanatic about old gear. You know, his studio is like walking into 1962 I mean, his place is, is, is perfect. And I took it over to his place and we put it on a turntable and I was like holding my breath. Cause I was thinking, man, you know, I recorded this at home, you know, uh, right. I hope it sounds good. And it sounded great on his system. So I was, I'm really happy with the, the, uh, fidelity of what I came up with. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I'm very interested in it. I'm going to have to call up my local stores and ask them, uh, if they plan on carrying it. And if not, you know, to, to order at least me one, uh, you know, I'm not sure if they had plans to already, but there's so many releases. I mean, like I, I looked at the list and I'm just like, this is so much stuff. It's crazy. It really is. Uh, where do you live? In Rhode Island. Oh, Rhode Island. Are you a Deer Tick fan? Uh, yes. Yes, I am. Um, I know those guys actually personally, um, not too well, but like I actually just ran into John the other day. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah, back I'm... here in Rhode Island, actually. Yeah, I'm friends with them. Uh, they recorded one of my songs on their last album. Yes, Too Sensitive for This World. I saw yeah, that. yeah. They're really nice guys. Like, really nice. And uh, amazing music fans. Like, oh the, my God. The, the depth of, jo of John's knowledge of music is, is astounding to me because he's younger than me. <laughs> yeah, he is, he is a savant, I think, when it comes to that. But he sought me out. It was pretty funny because when he sought me out, um, I felt like, a, you know, like an old blues guy in Mississippi, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. like John was, he wasn't even sure if I was still alive, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, he sought me out and, uh, I, I performed with them recently out here in LA. They played back last November, they played a show and they had me come out and sing too sensitive for this world. And he oh, gave a real, cool. he gave a really nice speech about who I am and why the audience should know who I am. It was really, really nice. Great yeah, guy. he that you know that's the thing about him and and that band you know is just like they they really um like appreciate music history and like you know where it came from the the people that influenced them where they find inspiration and they like you know want to promote that stuff they want to like you know get people that are are possibly lesser known and just kind of bring them up in in front you know. So uh, again, about your record, um, I realized that this year is actually the 15th anniversary of Record Store Day. So that's is, that's pretty uh, is it monumental. Really? Yeah, wow. 15 years. So it's wow. pretty special that you uh, you have this uh, this record coming out for for this anniversary date. Yeah, thanks for telling me that. I didn't know that. 
Not a problem. So uh, the one thing I was thinking about was that, uh, you know, I was looking over all the titles. I was like, considering what a career you've had and some of the names that you've worked with over these years, are there any releases that you know of this year that are connected to you some way? Hmm. I don't think so. Um, I don't know if there are any reissues of anything I've produced in the past um, yeah. or not. Like, uh, I don't have the list in front of me. I guess I could probably find yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think so. I haven't seen the list, so I don't know. But um, I, I, would, I would imagine someone would have let me know by now. Yeah, I, I would have imagined as well. But um, I think Alan Vega actually has something coming up in this, uh, this year. Yeah, last year, um, a record that I produced and played on with Alan came out. Um, Which is that, Cubus Blues? No, no, that, that, that came out as a reissue. That was recorded in 1994. Oh, okay. And, and it came out, it was reissued by Light in the Attic Records, I guess, ooh, seven years ago, maybe. Um, but there was a record called Alan Vega After Dark that came out on In the Red Records. Oh, okay last year around this time last year i don't know if it was part of record store day or not um yeah alan vega has got uh jukebox baby uh backed with speedway on sacred bones coming out oh great seven inch vinyl oh great yeah uh i'm a huge alan vega fan yeah i really i really miss that guy we were good friends i really miss him yeah, well, I'm sorry that you know we you you've experienced some losses. Obviously, Alex Chillen is, is another one that, uh, that you've lost fairly recently. Yeah, both of those guys. You know, I forget they're not here. You know, and I'm and I'm ready to pick up the phone and go, "Hey, Alex," and I realize, oh man, that doesn't happen anymore. You know, it still hasn't quite sunk in, and it's been yeah. a while for both of them now. And right. it's still and it's still you know when you don't live in the same city as someone, it's easy to forget that you know there are these long absences between times when you actually see each other in person if you don't live in the same city. So when that person ceases to exist, you feel like it's just another long pause. It's easy to feel that. Like, oh, I'm going to see him again. You know, hmm. it's just going to, it's just, you know, it's been six months or a year, you know. And now, um, you know, it's still dawning on me every now and then that those guys are actually not here. Right. Like yeah, it's a, well, it's a, it's a continual discovery. Yeah. I'm really sorry that the, you know, that you have to experience that loss. Um, but I imagine like listening to their music must kind of like make them feel closer in a way. It does. That's the beauty of uh, recorded sound, right? There's immortality. Right. Um, you know, Thomas Edison, uh, gave us recorded immortality. Hmm. So, um, uh, speaking of, uh, recorded immortality, um, I had you. Uh, I, I wanted to have you on the show to discuss a record that was important to you, that was influential to you, and uh, you chose. Uh, let me see if I can get this correct. Make sure I'm <laughs> the uh, the Sir Douglas Bands, Texas Tornado. Yes. All right. There was some confusion. I think uh, I was first told uh, Doug uh, Sam. Sam is how you pronounce his name, right? Yeah. Uh, and like there's him there's his solo work there's this uh, there's the doug Sam quintet right yeah i i wasn't even i'm looking at the album cover now i pulled it out i actually listened to the record again this morning and, and uh and was um uh what would the word be um i i verified my choice in a, in a really great way <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah i listened to it and, yeah this is my favorite album i think um 
Yes, he, he went by Sir Doug and he and he went by Sir Douglas Quintet and he went by Doug Som. And mm. um, it's funny, when I looked at the album this morning, I didn't realize this was a Sir Douglas band album. I thought it was just a Doug Som album all these years, and I've owned it since it came out. <laughs> That's oh, kind of okay. funny. I never yeah. read it. I never read it carefully because I, w- I went right into listening to it, I guess, you know. Right. Well, have you been a big fan of his for a long time? And like, were you a, a fan of like some of the earlier work or, or how did you get introduced to this record? Well, this record came into my life. Uh, I saw, uh, I was a fan when uh, She's About a Mover was a hit in 1965, uh, right in the middle of the British invasion. And um, it was my favorite British invasion record. But then I found out that he was actually from Texas and the Sir Douglas was just kind of a joke. The Sir Douglas Quintet, they sounded British, and they looked British. But uh, I found out later they were from Texas, of all places, hmm. which is still another country. So, you know, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't that different. But uh, um, I was a fan of, of what of the records I had a chance to hear. Mendocino was another hit they had a few years later. But hmm. in 1973, I, I saw Doug Som live three times in one year. and he became my favorite thing because during a a doug psalm set he would be on stage with with a horn section a pedal steel player an accordion player and bass drums pedal steel guitar and he would play everything from country music to uh you know uh chicano rock and roll and uh uh, conjunto and uh, texas blues with with the horn section country music with a he, he pulled out a fiddle and play fiddle and it, it was like my record collection came to life like he's playing every style of music before his set is over hmm. and he was such a generous performer uh really gave 100 percent. and uh this record came out in 1973 i believe Yes. When I had had the opportunity to see him three times in what in that year, and he was oh. performing uh, performing this album at that time, so I have a real connection to it. Like I, I would see him live, and then I would put the record on, and it was you know, uh, he's my guy. He's my number one guy. Yeah. Cool. Well, so if you were so, I mean, seventy three, you're seeing him three times that year. Uh, so that was that the first time was that like basically your introduction to him like around that time frame my introduction to the new oh was the 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 quintet right yeah but my introduction to him as a live performer uh, was then and it it happened in a funny way i went to see uh jerry garcia had a uh a side project a bluegrass band called old and in the way and they they came to philadelphia and played an outdoor show and the opening act was Doug Som and Band. And he had just put out that record called Doug Som and Band, which had Dr. John on it and uh, Bob Dylan and a bunch of people. It was kind of like a, a superstar record. Right. And uh, I really liked that record. But when I saw Doug live, I just could not believe he, he completely, he was a really hard act to follow. Like Olden in a way, when they came out and played, it was really hard for them to recapture the audience because doug came out and just killed you know Mm, yeah he killed and uh then the grateful dead came to town like six months after that for two nights in philadelphia with doug som opening so 
I bought tickets for both nights. So I got a chance to see Doug two more, two nights in a row open for the dead. And, um, I was, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been, um, a very loyal fan ever since. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, listening to this record, this is my first time experiencing, uh, anything by Doug Som and it's a, it's a pretty interesting record. I, I like it. I do like it a lot actually. <clears throat> um, and I can kind of see the connection because listening to this record and, and, you know, the records of yours that I've been listening to over the past few weeks, um, it certainly seems that the influence this record had on you was pretty profound and if nothing else, it seems that it may have informed you that anything goes. Yeah. You don't have to worry about what genre you're playing. Just if you feel it, do it. Right. And you can yeah. put it all together uh, in a collection. And if, you're in, if your intention is pure, um, then uh, you don't have to, you don't, there's no need to, which drives record companies nuts. Like Doug Som was a big problem. Like he only, he was on like Atlantic Records for only two albums and then he bounced over to Warner Brothers and he bounced over to here for the, for the very reason what we're complimenting about him was a big problem for marketing people. You know, right, right. <laughs> what we like about this record and what I love about this record uh, had the marketing people, um, you know, uh, they, they, they were, you know, practically, you know, had an aneurysm trying to figure out how to, how to right. market it, you know, and the same yeah. thing with me. Like I, I followed the Doug Som example right away in my career. And in the early days, you know, I had a, a demo deal with Warner brothers in the early eighties and their criticism of me is pick one style and do it. And I couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't do it. You know, uh, I told my manager, I can't do that. And, uh, he, he quit managing me because of it. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to follow what I felt and like Doug, you know, my hero, mm. uh, follow cool. what, follow what you feel and an audience will show up and right. it may not, may not be a big audience, but it'll all be right. It'll all be, um, pure, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny though. Like I, I, I really admire that, that, you know, that idea to just follow your heart and just make whatever the hell you want to make and just put it out however you want to put it out. But, um, but as far as that example is concerned, you know, the, the label stepping in and like, you know, marketing people, like not knowing what to do with you necessarily. Um, you know, it makes me think about some artists like, like Beck and like Ween, you know, because though they, they span genres of like, you know, stuff that they'll do, it, it seems for the most part, they'll stay down that one lane per record. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, I'm not criticizing your, your career. I think that, you know, I think your career is wonderful and, and obviously it, it worked well, well for you. But, um, but as far as like what those marketing people would be suggesting, I would say like, well, maybe if you just kind of like compiled all your music to fit like all the genre, all of the one folk genre put that on one record and then all of the kind of more uh, rock and roll garage rock fit on one record on fit on another record and so forth you know yeah i'm 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 the wrong guy for that i get I, it does you're, you're right it makes it makes sense but i'm it's too late right. no no of course i mean <laughs> yeah. it is what it is but uh but i just I, think that you know because i didn't think about the marketing aspect behind it and how like i didn't realize that they actually even your management even dropped you because of that yeah, well, we, yeah, we, we parted ways. Uh, uh, it, it was, it was, um, 
we both agreed we shouldn't work together anymore. Right. Basically, right. he said, I don't know how to commission you. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to be able to commission if this is the way you're, you're, you're going to do things. You know, and it, it worked out great for me. I mean, I'm a very happy guy. I have no regrets about uh, the size of, of uh, my success and the mm-hmm. size of my audience and um, everything worked out great. I've been able to make music exactly the way I want to, you know, for like almost 40 years now. So um, yeah. well, that's not wor- to sneeze at. It worked out for me. And, you know, and I lived a long time um, before I was in the record business. I didn't get a record deal until I was in my thirties. You know, I was older than everyone else. And uh, I, when I got out of high school, I I didn't go to college. So I I worked manual labor jobs. You know, I worked in a, in a knitting mill uh, for about two years. Matter of fact, this, uh, when I listened to Texas tornado this morning, I was reminded of myself in the knitting mill during the day uh, with these songs stuck in my head, <laughs> you know, and I was a landscaper for about five years and I, and I uh, went to night school for offset printing and I worked as an offset printer and I drove a delivery truck in Philadelphia. Hmm. So, so by the time I had a chance to make records, I really knew who I was. Right. And I, and I also had a lot of experience being obscure, you know, a, a, a non star, you know, I had yeah. it down. I had that lifestyle down. You know, I was a very content guy, not right. being. Yeah, you know, I, I never wanted to be Elton John or anything. Um, I just wanted to make music, and and what I really wanted to do was make a living as a yes. musician. If I could monetize my passion, and you have to really, um, you have to have a real list, realistic expectations about how much money you expect to make if you're going to monetize your passion. Yeah, which meant I was less, uh, I, I, less easy to fall prey to what record companies tell me I needed to be or what I needed to change in order to be famous. Right. That was kind of an argument that hit, kind of hit a brick wall with me a lot of the time. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's also another very admirable quality. I mean, you know, working class background, obviously just, you know, not afraid to do the work and be in there and, you know, work at it all day type thing, not having to, to think about, you know, the fame aspect behind it. Yeah, it's very cool, man. I really appreciate that. I really admire it. And the other thing, too, is as a live performer, I was watching my approach work every night. Um, we were a popular live act. The Ben Vaughn Combo was a very popular live act. We toured up and down the East Coast. And every time we were in front of audiences, I would switch styles through a set. I would play like five or six different styles of music before the set was over. And get an encore. So hmm. I had I had proof that it worked. And when a record company would tell me that doesn't work, I would say, "Well, I don't know. I, I'm I'm experiencing the opposite of that every night on stage." So, um, right. I, I you know I followed my impulses, and, and it seemed to click with audiences in a bar. You know, <laughs> so right. I was I was kind of done thinking about it from that point on. You know, right, right, yeah. You're seeing the firsthand kind of immediate response as opposed to like whatever you know, metrics that they're, that the record labels are trying to analyze, you know? Yeah. 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 I was, I was getting a good response with real people, right? you know, not yeah. A&R guys, but real people, you know, yeah, people who, you go. who, uh, after work, uh, they go home and they get a shower and they come out to the club and they're, and they buy a beer and they're there, you know? Right. Uh, and it was, and so I had, um, 
I had a nightly focus group going on that was working for me. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So, how, how, what is uh, what is gigging looking like for you now? Because uh, you know now pandemic is for the most part settled it seems and and you know shows yeah. are happening without any hitches for the most part it seems like so yeah i have a gig tonight actually oh cool uh, i'm playing at the local bar there's a little dive in culver city that i'm playing um and i'm going to spain for a fairly long tour um it was postponed we were i was i was right before lockdown i was scheduled to go to spain I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky that when I started putting my records out, the, pr the problem that uh, marketing people in America had with my music, they did not have in Europe. Um, they, they, uh, when, my, when my records came out in Spain and France and, um, and Italy, they immediately embraced what I do with no question. And I've been able to work over there since the 80s. Whenever I want, I can... I can uh, book a tour and go over and play to uh, loyal, very loyal, enthusiastic audiences and uh, multi-generational too, like young people over there hmm. uh, come out to see me play too. Um, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm very lucky. If you're going to be popular somewhere other than America, I would say the romance language countries are the best ones to be popular in. Sure. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I've, I've heard people, you know, I know a lot of people that are in bands and that do touring and uh, yeah, they always say they always have great stories about the traveling in the UK, touring in the UK, or in the in the Europe in general. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there's just a very different mindset of of uh, music consumption over there. People just seem more ravenous for for live music, and especially uh, you know uh, American artists. Oh, and they show their appreciation like unabashedly. You know, right. uh, yeah. like people cry. You know, when they meet you, they cry. I cannot believe I am the luckiest person in the world to meet you. Uh, you know. Yeah. I remember one it. time I, um, I was in France and this guy comes up to me after the show and he goes, you are the perfect marriage. And I'm like, what? He goes, you are the perfect marriage. And I go, marriage of what? And he looked at me like I was stupid for not knowing this. But he yeah. said, the perfect marriage between Lou Reed and J.J. Kale. Oh. Yeah, well, there like, you go. It's more specific like, when you say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to draw it out of him. He, he, he assumed right. I knew. So <laughs> you like, had the perfect marriage. Yeah. Well, that's that's right. That's very cool. I, I can see that, too. I mean, like, yeah, you you get a lot of, lot of, well, you cover so much, right? You cover so many styles and so many, so many different things. It's just, uh, it's eclectic. And it's also very American. You know, yeah. what I do, what yeah. I do is very American. And that's what they love about it is that I'm, like the history of American music basically is being uh, is being covered in in my music. Yeah, so right. I actually, I, I represent the American you know catalog to them. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that some of this record has something to do with that actually, and and we're going to get into that. Um, speaking of meeting people, as far as the like you know uh, influences and stuff like that are concerned, did you ever get to meet Doug Som? Oh yes, oh, yeah? <laughs> he never remembered who I. I've hung out with him probably six times, and he never remembered me. He had ADD uh, big time, and he was um, he smoked pot all day long. Mm -hmm. um, but he had a lot of energy. Everybody thought he was a speed freak, or he was on coke, but he wasn't. He smoked pot to calm down, and he was mm. still restless and hyperactive. And he's like a dragonfly, you know, like 
you know, the way he yeah. would move, like, bing, boom, bing, boom, you know. And uh, like his personality, really, when you think about it, was uh, was similar to his uh, his uh, darting around between styles, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. country music, jazz, blues, you know, uh, Mexican music. Uh, he he um, he was a really great guy. And I never I, I was never angry that he didn't remember me because I don't think he remembered anyone. Uh, right. But he was like he was a hippie. Like the way he talks, like, "Hey man, hey man, dynamite, yeah, far out, man." And uh, like, if you if you he, he was describing a record to me once, he goes, "Man, it's a real soul killer." And uh, he just had you know always saying groovy, and he called me a beautiful man. You're a beautiful cat, man. I really dig really dig talking to you, man. You're a beautiful cat. Wow. He he had this. He was he was a Texan, uh, but he was also like a San Francisco hippie. He had like this combination. He was one of a kind. Yeah, and if you ever get a chance to see a movie called Cisco Pike with okay. Chris Christopherson and Harry Dean Stanton, okay, there's a there's a scene where they go to a Doug Som recording session. Whoa! To sell dope to him, and you'll see Doug Som. You'll see the energy. It's an amazing scene. Uh, he's really he's really like he's talking a mile a minute, and he's he's full of nervous ticks, and he's always moving. That was yeah. Doug. That was Doug. But I saw him perform, I would say, probably close to 50 times. Um, wow. That's how much of a fanatic I was. I would travel to go. Like, if you ever played in New York, I, I was living in South Jersey, you know, up until 1995. And New York was a two-hour drive. And if, if I looked in the Village Voice and saw that he was playing, I would get in the car and go, you know. Mm. Yeah. And you never got to work with him, never been shared a bill or... Like no, I, wor I worked with Augie Myers, his organ player. Uh, we did a record together called Texas Road Trip. Um, so I'm friends with Augie. And Augie is, is on every, I think, every Doug Som record. I know he's, I'm sure he's on this one. I'll have to look at it, but I'm sure he's on it. Um, he is the, you know, the kind of Tex-Mex organ sound that usually oh, yeah. go goes with Doug. That's, that's Augie Myers. So I've worked Augie with Myers, him yep. and I've, I've worked with some of his other uh, band members, you know, uh, but never got a chance to work with Doug. I really wanted to, as a record producer, I was producing records, uh, you know, like in the early nineties, Electra records, mm -hmm. uh, hired me to produce three albums for a series they were doing called the American Explorer series. And the idea behind the series was to find, uh, older, um, talent deserving wider recognition, you know, people that had been around for a while and make kind of a legacy album. Mm-hmm. I did the Arthur Alexander record uh, and a Charlie Feathers record during that time. And I, I was really pitching for a Doug Som record. And they were saying, he's, he's not old enough. He's not old enough. Wait, wait 10 years. I'm like, okay. And then he died. Oh. <laughs> so it never That's... happened. But I really, wow. wanted, I really wanted to produce Doug, if you can even produce Doug. I mean, I don't even know what that means. But it would be worth the, it would be great, a great experience to try, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, of course. That's amazing. Well, I'm sorry you didn't get the opportunity, but uh, but we can at least talk about it now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So so this record, um, my first experience with it, I like it. I really like it a lot. I thank you for for turning me on to this because uh, it's been pretty fun. Um, the first song on the record is San Francisco FM Blues.
It's a weird song because it starts off with a conjunto, like it's going to be a Mexican song, and all of a sudden it switches tempo and goes into a horn blues song with a funky beat. It's a really it's that's typical Doug. Even even in the middle of one one song, he couldn't stay in one style. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's wild. It's all over the place a little bit, you know, I mean, and it's very loose. Like uh, I think my 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 interpretation of this record was that overall it's nasty it's 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 just like covered in funk you know? yeah it's, it's and you can tell it's all live in the studio they're not doing any fancy overdubs or production it's not even really doesn't even sound produced yeah now from what i read this is actually this record came out in 1973 following his atlantic debut the the doug Salm and band record right right um and essentially this record was like the outtakes from that recording session yeah, I, I've heard that, and I've heard that recently, and I'm like, wow, great outtakes. <laughs> yeah, right. Because uh, especially side two, I don't know if you've, how, you know, how much you, uh, do you have it, you don't have it in LP form, I take it, right? I do not, no. I just have to listen to digital right now. Because starting with, I guess it will be song number six, uh, the song Texas Tornado, and then going down, mm-hmm. side, side two is completely different than side one. But yeah, I guess they, they recorded a whole lot of stuff. Um, at Atlantic Studio in New York, when when uh, Wexler put together the Superstar thing, David Bromberg's on it, Dr. John, all yeah. these people, and I guess they just you know recorded and recorded and recorded, hmm. and they put out that first album, and they had enough, almost enough for a second album, and then Doug, from what I understand, so I never thought about this when it came out. To me, it was the new Doug Som record. Yeah, and I was seeing them live, and this is very a very in the moment thing for me. Oh, here's Doug's new album. Cool. Oh, yeah. this sounds like this sounds like he sounded last night at the show. This is great. You know, um, I, I, that that information wasn't available. There was you know no no internet or Google to to do research. You just you believed what was handed to you. You know, mm-hmm. and I and I looked at this album and I go, oh wow, cool. Um, and I love the record and I just played it over and over again. And, and getting back to the idea of a side A and a side B break, I think I've listened to side two more than side one. Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, it's more fun, I think, right? It's more upbeat a little bit. Yeah, a little tighter too, like uh, less, less blues and guitar solos. It's like songs, you know? Right. Like I, I remember I saw him open for the Grateful Dead. One of those nights he opened for the Grateful Dead. He actually took a break in the middle of his set because we're going to take a brief intermission and come back. I'm, I'm like, you apparently have forgotten that you're the opening act. <laughs> he thought he was in a bar in San Antonio yeah. or something. Is he going to take a short break? We'll be back. You know, and the, bass, and, and the band's going, ba-doom, 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 ba-doom. okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back. He almost, you know, like it was, I was getting re- ready for him to say, remember your bartenders and waitresses, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he, was, uh, he was his own thing, man. Yeah, uh, wild. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Uh, San Francisco FM Blues. Um, I was going to ask you. Uh, you have a ra- your own radio show on the FM dial. I do. Is it syndicated <clears throat> in San Francisco? Um, no, it's not on the air in San Francisco. It's on in Seattle and uh, in Oregon. Uh, no, it's not. Oh, okay. It needs to be. Well, they're, they're, you got some San Francisco FM Blues now. I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm gonna to have to fix that. I gotta, get right. rid of, I, I gotta get rid of these blues, man. Yeah, man. Of course. Um, so I've, li- I've been listening to the show. I've been listening to a number of your your uh, your radio programs, and um, 
I like your I love your programming because it's it's much like your musical style. You know, it's a little bit of everything. It's the many moods of Ben Vaughn, and it's called that for a reason. Um, but so it seems that you don't play anything newer than the '80s. Why is that? That's right. I I stall out right around 1979. I think that the the newest thing I play is the Gun Club from 1980, or yeah. I might I might play something by the Cramps maybe from '81. Maybe. Well, and and you've had a couple of episodes, kind of, or at least one that was dedicated to the '80s. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of like the, the, the stretch in your, in your uh, repertoire. Well, I guess um, my record collection and my fanaticism about buying records, um, it changed in the 80s because I became a recording artist. And mm-hmm. I, became, I became too busy, you know, to follow everything. Um, but, but also I think that as far as the unheard music, which is, you know, what my show is dedicated to is um, turning people onto records they didn't know existed. I mean, that's the, the ultimate thing you can do is introduce a piece of music to someone and they go, wow, I can't believe I never heard this before. This might be my favorite record ever. Right. You know, those, those discoveries are always right around the corner. You know, there's always a piece of music you haven't heard yet that might actually be something you relate to more than anything you've ever heard previous. And I love that. I that that's one of the one of the reasons to stay alive because you never know. Right. Well, there also could be some artists that you've never heard of still, and you know, someone else could turn you on to that's more of a modern modern artist. You know, someone from the '90s or 2000s. That's true. That's so. true. But my area of expertise is um, is really like the uh, the '50s, '60s, and '70s. Um, okay. Because I was uh, an observer during those years i was not a participant you know in the record business getting a record deal and and going through the whole thing um so i had i had more time to be uh, rooting around and looking for records and, and i'm also really curious about artists who didn't sell a whole lot because mm-hmm. the record industry would like you to believe it's because they weren't good you know or the yeah. quality wasn't that great. And you find these records by people you've never heard of before that are um, astounding and really high quality. And so I'm, I don't really, you know, I never really thought about it, like why my playlist stalls out right around 1979. But um, I guess it's all pre-CD would be one way of looking at it. Oh, okay. Huh, interesting. All right. Yeah. Well, I was just curious why that was. I mean, and so that, that, that makes perfect sense. So uh, let, let's move on to the next song, Someday. You want me like I want you, but I'll be gone with somebody new. That's a great, that's a really great song. And it sounds like it's a cover. Um, I can't believe Doug wrote it because it really does sound like uh, a classic. Yeah, I was, you know, I was confused by that. Because I think there are some songs on this record that he did not write. Only a few. Yeah, he, he didn't write Tennessee Blues. That's Bobby Charles. Bobby Charles, very interesting guy. He wrote uh, See You Later, Alligator <laughs> when he was a teenager. He was a, a Louisiana guy. And then he moved up to Woodstock, New York, and recorded with the guys from the band and everything. And he put out a, um, his own version of Tennessee Blues, which is really good. But Doug is such a great singer that he really takes that to a whole nother level. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so someday, uh, I know in the song, Doug sings, 
I know someday you'll be sorry. Um, so it's kind of more of like a, I don't know, like a kind of a unrequited love song, I guess, kind of, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'd like to focus more on, on someday as, uh, as what you'd like to do someday. Um, is there anything that you've had on your bucket list that you haven't had the opportunity for yet? Hmm. Let me think about that. Um, I would like to be hired to produce Van Morrison and then get fired by him. <laughs> well, why, why would you want to be fired by him? Because <laughs> I really don't want to work with him, but I would like to at least have the experience of, 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 of being hired and fired by him. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's kind of a joke. He's like, it's impossible to work with. Uh, yeah. um, but I'm a huge fan, you know, and I really wish he hadn't like gone off the deep end mentally uh, during COVID. That was really disappointing, but oh, it yeah. doesn't make me dislike his music. I mean, Van Morrison, that's another guy. I've seen him perform probably 30 times. Um, Interesting. But yeah, I can't think of um, what else I would. Uh, yeah, I can't think of, of you, like a no you bucket done, You've done it all already? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, good. That's great. <laughs> I think I have. Not bad, man. Okay. Well, uh, let's move on to the next one. Blue Horizon. Blue Horizon. Blue Horizon, that's a Latin number. Um, again, written by Doug, which is like sophisticated writing. And it has some percussion on it. And I think there's a flute solo on that song, maybe. I think you're right. Yeah. I don't yeah. remember it too well. Um Oh, it, look, it says here it was scored by Willie Bridges. So somebody came in and wrote that arrangement. Oh, weird. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Well, so um, so Doug Sam was was a quite literally a, a uh, virtuoso, right? He was. He started out his career as Little Doug, the pedal steel player. Yeah, what six? Where was it? Yeah, oh. there are photographs of Little Doug, uh, and he had his own pedal steel with his name on it, and yeah. then uh, then he played fiddle. And then uh, by the time he was a teenager, he was he had number one hits, uh, R&B hits in San Antonio um, while he was still in high school. Um, yeah. And with, with the with the big horn sections, you know, that San Antonio sound. Um, yeah. uh, so he was by the time. He had a chance by the time, you know, I saw him, he had many years of experience. And it's always interesting when you think about that, when you see a performer on stage, like I remember Alex Chilton, uh, you know, he had a number one hit when he was 16. Oh, yeah. So whenever you were, you know, I toured a lot with him. You know, we played a lot of shows together. That's how we got to know each other. Hmm. And uh, every now and then we'd be hanging out and I realized, wow, he's been doing this since he was 16. Like we're in a hotel lobby waiting for a ride or whatever. And I go, man, he's been doing this since he was 16. <laughs> oh, that's right. And you were the late bloomer. You didn't start to your 30s. Yeah, yeah. It was my oh, first wow. time out there. You know, I'm, I'm, my first time I ever toured the entire United States, I was 31, you know. Yeah. And I'm hanging out with Alex, who was only five years older than me. And he's like the grizzled veteran of the whole thing. He was just, you know, like you couldn't surprise him. <laughs> you right. know with anything because he'd been doing it. he was like a child actor almost you know yeah uh, and the same thing with doug uh doug never had another job 
right. ever. Music was what he was doing since he was five. You know, you're the breadwinner and you're like 16. That's that's a little weird. Hmm. Yeah, I can, I can imagine it would be. Um, yeah, you have you have a bunch of middle age like agents and managers, you know, pushing you to get on stage and do this because they have a commission, you know, and you're just a kid. Right. Like, what does like the money even matter to you as a kid? You know. Yeah, and you're and you're you're more worried about whether you know your acne is going to go away or, or whether you're ever going to get a girlfriend or whatever. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. <clears throat> huh. So let's see. So Blue Horizon, though, I'm not sure what this song is getting at, really. Um, now, for some reason, their lyrics for most of the songs on this record are nowhere to be found. I believe that. Uh, there's no record. There's no uh, lyrics in the record. No. No. And and Blue Horizon. I wouldn't expect there to be a through line on that because Doug smoked a lot of pot, you know. Sure, um, sure. I think that was written as a mood. I think it's more of a mood, yeah, than, yeah. than an actual song. Yeah, uh, I made out, I made out some of the lyrics because, like, I was listening kind of really hard, just trying to figure it out, just trying to you know hear what he's saying to see if there's something there, and um, not really. I mean, it seems slightly dystopian, um, some yeah. kind of like dissatisfaction of societal norms, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that but, sounds uh, right. Yeah, but not really. Nothing I could really grasp very well. Yes, that that's about right. Yeah. All right. Well, then, uh, the, in that case, let's move on to the next one: Tennessee Blues. Tennessee Blues is a beautiful song written by Bobby Charles. Um, Mother Earth did it with uh, Tracy Nelson. They had a version of it. Bobby Charles recorded his own version of it on his, uh, I think he only had one album on Bearsville that had everybody on, everybody from the band and, you know, the whole Woodstock thing. Um, I don't know where Doug would have heard that song, but um, boy, I'm looking at the uh, credits here. Charlie Owens on pedal steel. He was uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's pedal steel player. Dr. John, we all know, mm -hmm. Augie, Augie Meyer uh, yeah. on organ. Flaco Jimenez on accordion. And Flaco Jimenez would not have a career. We would not know of him as the amazing accordion player if it wasn't for Doug. Doug brought him to New York for those sessions and blew everybody away. He was a local San Antonio guy. Oh, okay. um, and Jack Barber and George Raines, that, that, that's the San Antonio rhythm section. And then... Uh, David Fathead Newman and Wayne Jackson. I mean, these are like heavy duty horn players. Hmm. And that version is so beautiful. Uh, and it's such a great song about being homesick. You know, find, yeah. me a, find me a spot on some mountaintop with lakes all around me. Right. A, a, yeah. place, I, a place I can lose these Tennessee blues. Oh, man. Great song. Yeah. Yeah. The song is certainly blue. Yeah. Um, and his vocal on it is just so good. Yeah. Um, so here, here Doug's asking to be put in a place where he can truly relax and kind of take it easy. Um, wh where would this be for you? Uh, the Mojave Desert, right where I am now, actually. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> that's, why, that's why I don't have a bucket list. <laughs> yeah, right, you're living it, living the dream. Yeah, I, 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 I found my place, yeah. A long time ago I found it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what, what was it that drew you there? Um, well, I grew up in New Jersey, you know, I grew up in South Jersey in a very congested area. Everybody lived on top of each other. Right. Um, the, the East coast energy was very, uh, edgy, you know, and, uh, I always wanted to have less of that, uh, not only in my life, but in, inside myself, you know, hmm. um, you know, I grew up uh, as a kid, I grew up in a neighborhood where, uh, you know, we just, where fist fighting was a daily thing. Sometimes you did it because somebody made you mad. And sometimes you did it because you were bored, <laughs> you know, it was just like yeah. kind of a stupid, uh, you know, childhood, uh, thing, but it was like, it was just, you know, South Jersey, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, I always felt I could handle it. You know, it was no big deal. I could handle myself in a, in a rough manner, but I also had a sensitive side and a quiet side and a desire for quiet and solitude and a quiet and a, and a desire for slower activity, like the tempo of life being slower. Mm-hmm. And the volume that like the actual audio volume of life being quieter i've always had that and when we were on tour in the uh, in the 80s the first time we landed in the desert was um i believe it was in uh albuquerque new mexico i got out of the car and i was uh, out of the van and i was like this is it the way the air felt the way everything sounded the way it looked i i knew that I had to live in a desert at some point. It just hmm. was an instant connection. Yeah. And it took, took me about 10 or 15 years, but I, but I got here. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's great. I've only been out there like once, uh, like as far as like Albuquerque, like that, <clears throat> that area, like, uh, where was it? Like Phoenix, Arizona, something like that. Yeah. Phoenix is a lot further South, but yeah, I mean, it's the Southwest, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm in, I'm outside of, uh, 29 palms and uh, you can't see my nearest neighbor where i am so you don't have to wear clothes nice and just so you know i am wearing clothes right now <laughs> i don't yeah. want to make you uncomfortable that's why you didn't have the camera on i get it. well cool. you know i'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, if i could you, be i would be too <laughs> there's some things you don't need to see in life you sure, know? <laughs> sure. but uh yeah it really uh it spoke to me and then you know i, I was out here doing doing tv i had it uh, a good run, successful run as a TV composer on sitcoms right. for, about, for about 11 years. And when I retired from that, I bought the house when I was doing that and I would come out on the weekends to decompress and then go back to that insane deadline schedule. Hmm. Uh, very intense, you know, weekly episodic TV. Uh, you know, you're on the air, whether you're ready or not, you know, your music has to be done and handed in and they, and you they marry at the picture and it's on the air Tuesday night. Yeah. Uh, wow. And you can't postpone deadlines when you're, when you're doing weekly TV, you know, right. Um, you're on the schedule Tuesday night, eight 30, third rock from the sun, you know, uh, you have to, you have to deliver. And that was really intense. I loved it. I loved the challenge. I, I, uh, I really loved the challenge and I liked the people I worked with. Uh, but it wasn't really my world. It was their world of television. And I was a musician helping them make the show better, you know? Right. So Monday through Friday, I would be in the trenches, put, putting in like 14 hour days. And then Friday night, I would leave the studio a lot and drive straight to the desert and mm-hmm. you know, get out to my house around 11 o'clock at night, wake up in the morning in the middle of nowhere, no, no entertainment industry, 
concerns whatsoever. Right. And I would like, I would, you know, wake up in the morning and realize, oh, the quail have come back, you know. <laughs> yeah, man, it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, and then when I retired, I, I realized I wanted more of, the, you know, uh, more of uh, just observing nature and listening to the wind and things, you know. Hmm. Cool. Interesting. That sounds great. All right. Well, let's let's keep on moving. Um, sure. Ain't that loving you? Is the next song. You pick my hopes so high, put me down so low. That's a Bobby Blue Bland song. Um, I actually have the original record of that by Bobby Blue Bland. Um, it's a pretty, um, I would say, pretty loyal uh, version of that, loyal to Bobby Blue Bland's version. Um, yeah. But I love Doug's guitar playing on it, you know, his lead guitar. He's got that T-Bone Walker style completely down. Hmm. And uh, I love hearing him riff, especially in between vocals. Like he'll sing a line and then play a, lead, a little lead. But that, yeah. was, that was one of his, uh, that, that's a T-Bone Walker kind of thing. And Doug was really good at that. Yeah. So, I mean, me listening to this song, I, I, I just knew that this song was loose. Like I was listening to it. I was just like, whoa, this, this band is just... Cooking. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's just like they're they're just kind of really flying off the cuff. Like you can kind of hear a little fl- flubs here and there. Like you know the lyrics, like the way Doug sings, like he's slurring them every now and then or forgetting yeah. the word. Yeah, yeah I'm, kinda... I'm sure. I'm sure what happened, and you can tell because the horn section is not together on this. But they're such good players; it's great. But every now and then, sax will play an extra note after the after the horn line is done, and you realize, oh, oh they're doing this. They're like they're eyeballing each other. Right. And and right and they're playing this horn arrangement on the fly while Doug is singing his heart out, a, a song he's probably performed a million times back when he was a teenager or something. So he doesn't quite remember all the lyrics properly, uh, mm-hmm. but the feel of it that that's what's great about this record is the musicianship on this record is phenomenal. Yeah, because because uh, the word is and I and I'm sure this is true. Doug would just call out these songs or come in and go, "Hey man, I wrote a song," and it goes like this. And the next thing you know, they're the record button is pushed and it's on right. and it's on the album you know? they're going yeah 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 wild well so that that led, led me to wonder um how crucial are you to the recorded performance of your own work hmm um i can go either way um live i prefer to keep things very loose um I, i'm a I've, I've done a lot of touring where i use local rhythm sections like i'll show up at the airport by myself with my mm-hmm. guitar and there'll be a, you know, an amplifier ready for me and, and a bass player and drummer and maybe a keyboard player who I've never played with before. And we would rehearse once and then get on stage. And it sounds a lot like, like, like uh, what you're, what we we're just talking about, you know, yeah, um, right. like I'm calling out stuff or I'm giving cues and they're either hitting it right away or there may be a few, a few bars late. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I love it because it's like shifting sand and, and you know, you're alive when that's happening, you know? Right. It can fall apart and it can, it, you know, it's, it's risky to do it that way, but I really love having that living, breathing feeling around me instead of something, I, something predictable. Sure. You know? It's electric, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're kind of getting to know each other live on stage in front of an audience. That's pretty cool. You know? Yeah. So, well, so what about the recording setting? 
Recording settings, um, I'm a little more, uh, well, I'm arrangement oriented when it comes to records. I see records as being different than live performance. Um, in Doug's case, I don't feel that way at all because he's, he was, he jumps off the record as a live performer, I think, you know, cause he sang really loud and he had a great power to his voice, you know, mm. Be, me being in the Lou Reed territory, you know, or Johnny Cash territory, it's gotta be about the songs and it's gotta be about the arrangement. And uh, now when I worked with Alex Chilton and uh, Alan Vega, we were uh, very loose as far as how we worked. Uh, nothing planned and uh, nothing edited out. We were, all that was recorded live on the fly. Oh, wow. uh, so, so I have experience doing it. But as a singer myself and singing songs that I've written, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, very serious about wanting to serve the song properly yeah so i so i usually and i'm a, you know I'm, I'm an arranger you know people have hired me to, to do arranging so my, my stuff is more arranged on record less arranged on stage right so i mean so like a flub here and there you're not going to let that fly no because it might take away from the song right you know and what about production like if when producing some another band it depends on the artist um, if it's an artist who is known for uh, impro good improvisation, successful improvisation, hmm. um, I will, I will, I will uh, encourage looseness. Um, like Charlie Feathers, when I recorded Charlie Feathers, um, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was a legendary rockabilly guy. Yeah, well, I listened oh. to the record that you produced, yeah. Okay, yeah, there are a lot of mistakes on that record. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and even the engineering on it, like Charlie was like, I want the drums right next to me. I'm like, well, you know, we're supposed to separate the drums from your vocal mic because they're going to get a weird sound. He goes, I don't care, I want them next to me. I want to, yeah. you know, I want to feel them. And so I set up, you know, a drum kit next to him. We had uh, J.M. Van Eaton, a legendary drummer for Jerry Lee Lewis, sitting there on a drum kit next to Charlie Feathers. Hmm. And, and the engineer is going, man, this is like a nightmare for me as far as separation. I go, <laughs> whatever. I said, if we put slapback echo on Charlie's voice, the drums are going to have slapback echo. And that's the way it goes, because this is all about feel. Right. As a record producer, when I produce other people, the, the, the secret is to, is to bring out the essence of that person's talent. And a lot of times you have to remind them of what that is, because they they forget over the years or they, or they want to hit record and they, you know, they, they, they want to do something that is kind of goes against their best, the best parts of their talent. Hmm. And uh, so I approach each, each record differently when I'm producing other people. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to side two, huh? Yes. Texas My tornado. That might be Doug's um, signature song, really. It is, uh, right? Well, because then he went on to actually kind of name the band Texas Tornadoes, right? Yeah. And there's, an there's a biography of Doug out there, which I highly recommend, called Texas Tornado. Um, yeah, that song uh, is perfect. It's really a perfect record. Um, I don't know what else to say about it. It's, yeah. just, it's just a perfect song perfect uh vocal the lyrics are great uh the way the band plays on it is great 
Yeah, well, what you were saying uh, earlier about how, like, the whole the whole B-side is, is your favorite side, and, like, there, it definitely seems like there's a different vibe to it. Um, I noticed it, even though I wasn't listening to this on record, I, I, like, I kind of realized, like, when this song comes on, it's like, this has got a different feel, like, even uh, sonically. Like, it yeah. sounds almost like it's got a different kind of production to it. Like, just you can just hear the quality kind of shift a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tighter. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, and then and then you know, with the style of the music being a little bit kind of more lively, I don't know. I, like all of it together, it was just like it was just a different vibe altogether. I thought. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It should have been the first song on side one. Uh, well, if you just listen to side two first, that, there you go. That yeah. solves that problem. <laughs> well, this is one of those examples I was talking about. Like I, I'll listen to one side forever before I flip it over. When I flipped it over and I heard side two, I never, I never stopped listening to side two. Uh, oh yeah it's probably on my turntable for a year so texas tornado uh you've lived in a different in a few different places in this country over the years um what's the worst natural disaster you've lived through uh worst natural disaster um i haven't really witnessed one up close i've been lucky i got here in california right after the huge earthquake in 94 Hmm. and uh I i was here for el nino which was insane you know, yeah. house, houses uh, sliding down hills and, la- and landing right on the Pacific Coast Highway. And uh, they were building these big sand dunes along the beach here um, at the beach in Santa Monica. So El Nino was pretty crazy. Uh, but, you know, I haven't really, um, you know, blizzards in New Jersey, but you're in, you're in Rhode Island. You know how that feels. Um, mm-hmm. You just yeah. roll, you roll with them, even if they cripple the city you know, for a couple of days, you just roll with it and forget about it, you know? Right. Yeah. I went to, I went down to New Orleans right after Katrina and, and Alex took me on a tour of the ninth ward. Oh uh, yeah. Like right after that happened. And I, it was, wow. I mean, that was like, to, it looked like, uh, well, it looked like the footage from, uh, from Ukraine that we're seeing these days, you know, Yeah. Of, of just, you know, the foundations of structures and everything else destroyed, you know? Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, that I I didn't get to see any of that up close either. But I was actually in New Orleans just before it happened, and like, like I was living there for like nine months, and um, I literally left. And I think like what three? I think possibly three months later, Katrina hit. Wow! Wow! Yeah, so we just kind of literally dodged that bullet. It was a weird, weird time. I didn't like New Orleans actually. New Orleans is, uh, I think it's one of those places you have to be at the right place in your life when you land there for it to work for you. Yeah. I, know a lo- I know a lot of people from New Orleans and I've spent a lot of time there and I've noticed that some people move there and it doesn't click and then they'll come back 10 years later and it does click. So I think it depends on how restless you are or what kind of action you're looking for. It's a slow, it's a very slow place, you know, yeah. Memphis, Memphis is the same way. Um, a friend of mine moved to Memphis. He's from New Jersey. And he's like, man, everything is so slow here. I go, yeah, you, should, you might want to adjust to that because, you know, New Jersey is not exactly the healthiest, you know, ex, you know, uh, in, accelerated energy, you know, for yeah. that to be your normal thing all the time. It might be good for you to, and he did adjust to it. Now he takes forever doing everything. Now he frustrates me because he, 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 you know, he really adapted much too successfully to the Memphis <laughs> the memphis pace yeah yeah 
That's wild. Well, maybe I'll have to try it again. I mean, I've definitely wanted to go back down and visit, um, but I certainly don't want to go and live there again. But uh, yeah, go check out, hang out, because it's definitely fun. It's definitely a fun city. Yeah, I love it there. I don't know if I could live there, but I love it there. Yeah, yeah. I'll go back. We'll go back and try it out. All right. Well, uh, next song, Juan Mendoza. It's a world is a world. That's a that's a very strange song. What kind of music yeah. would you call that? You know, I was going to ask you that question because I'm not sure. Like, so, like, so I'm 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 Latino person, and like I I can hear the influences of some of this like Latino music, obviously being on the border or you know uh, near Mexico. Um, I think that Doug was probably influenced by a lot of like Mexican music. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to necessarily necessarily say mariachi music, but uh, there's like what the conjuntos you were talking about. Right. And uh, like, well, he was always like in San Antonio those guys all played together, you know, like, like a lot of the blues bands down there, you know, had, uh, had, you know, Chicano uh, sax players. And if you look at the credits here, I mean, it's like, you know, the names, I mean, uh, Benny, Benny uh, Velarde on the conga drums and uh, Louis Ortega, Mm-hmm. Um, so he was always surrounded. He was always in that culture, and they actually had a nickname for him, Doug Saldana. Uh, he was mm. like an honor, honorary Chicano. He would always say, you know, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and uh, that song to me, that, that's typical of Doug, where he might have invented a style of music for that one song that only exists for that one song. <laughs> yeah well i guess it was probably a little bit of a blend of stuff i mean like because i'm not too familiar with like that those genres of music from from that area because uh i mean like my family's from bolivia and like what i fam- am familiar with musically was like uh like cumbias and cuecas do you know mm-hmm. any of those things um oh yeah kind of yeah. kind of similar like i mean you, you get that still similar vibe there's uh certainly some uh, accordion music there's still there's certainly some aspects of like that rhythm with the bass you know that 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 kind of like walking bass line do you know stuff like right. that yeah um but i don't know i don't know what this is really like I, I assumed it had something to do with like kind of the Mexican influence because like so Juan Mendoza uh, I've done some research was a Mexican mariachi and uh, actor from Mexico. Oh, I didn't even know that. I never even thought about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's a real person, and I think that he was probably somebody that Doug looked at or at least got turned on to at some point um, in his youth, uh, and probably grew, you know drew some influence from it. And the fact that he. That he taught it to these musicians and they actually recorded it and it got released as a testament to like artistic freedom. Like even now you and I are confused by this song. Like what yeah. is this? And uh, Atlantic Records put it out, you know? Yeah. yeah and cool. Doug, Doug believed in it and, and did it and they, uh, they went through with it. And I, I love it because it's, it's a mystery to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he obviously felt so strongly for it. And like, like I'm saying, like, I mean, I'm not familiar with, with like, you know, Texas at all, but I know that there's obviously some blending of, of uh, you know, culture in there between, you know, Mexico 
and and Texas, and I mean, you can you just hear it in some of the the, the words alone. I mean, well, it's even it's even weirder than that. Um, the uh, in the you know where New Braunfels is in Texas? No, it's it's in between um, Austin and San Antonio, okay. uh, and it's a German. It was a, a German speaking city. Well, not, not city, a, a town, okay, sure. <laughs> a German speaking town, uh, German immigrants, and uh, they taught the Mexicans the polka. Hmm. That's where the accordion, oh, that's right. where the accordion got handed over to, to Mexican musicians. And of so course. when you hear the difference between, you know, like a, like a German polka, there is no difference between a German polka and a, and a Mexican polka, except for the lyrics. <laughs> it's all the yeah. same. And also the waltz. You know, all those Mexican ballads with a waltz that comes from the beer gardens in New Braunfels. That's where, where, you know, so it's a very, uh, I mean, the cross cultural uh, exchange going on in Texas at that time. Uh, And then, of course, you mix country music in with it and Texas swing and blues and everything. And and Doug is a product of that. I don't think he, I don't even think he thought that he was changing genres when he did. I think it was like from the time he was a kid, that's just in order to keep people on the dance floor, that's what you did, I guess, right? Right, yeah, right. Get, get the people moving however you can. Yeah, and <laughs> you know, you're not thinking about like, well, this is a, you know, a, you know, a Mexican-American expression. I don't think that, <laughs> I really doubt he was thinking about it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, I do, I, I agree with you. So, uh, well, let's move on to Chicano. Kind of like a continuation of the of the Juan Mendoza trip. Um, for, like you were saying, it, this one seems like a very straightforward, like like Mexican based, like polka whatever you want to call it like because it's 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 pretty straight it's not like an interpretation really no no musically it's it's right down the middle um it is conjunto you know um or norteño whatever you want to call it uh norteño what did you say what is that oh norteño that's uh, north of mexico uh, norteño oh. music is uh, mexican american music uh, it's called norteño because it's north of the border oh okay um the lyrics are interesting because he's speaking in first person, right? As far as being a Chicano. Oh, yeah. Yep. And Chicanos for Chicanos right on. I'm guessing that has something to do, you know, with um, the Chicano rights movement, uh, you know, happening at that time and the boycotts, uh, you know, of uh, migrant workers and things going on. That oh, okay. A, a big thing in the early 70s with um, Cesar Chavez. Uh, uh, that might be what that is. Maybe it's a Chicano pride song, but written by like a, a white guy from Texas. I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, so that's cool because like that, you know, that's kind of what I was curious about. Cause like, you know, I know that I saw somewhere in, in the reading that I had done that he was uh, kind of like voted some, uh, honorary Chicano in 1971. And, uh, and, you know, yeah. I mean, like, I think that, you know, race relations currently are a little, you know, obviously shaky. And, you know, I, I didn't I didn't know what his relationship was with that, with, with those people or in the, in this 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 music uh, that it originated from. But obviously he he loved it. 
he loved it. And, and I believe he was, uh, you know, commingling and playing this music uh, from an early age because he also played bajo sexto, you know, the mariachi instrument, which is sort of like a 12 string guitar, um, mm-hmm. like a bass 12 string guitar kind of thing. Um, so I don't, th- I think he is, he's like one of those guys who was in the right place at the right time where the music showed up before anybody told him what it was called, you know? Like, oh, this is country. Oh, this is blues. Oh, this is whatever. I don't think, you know, if considering that he was a pedal steel player at five playing in, in, in bars already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not old enough to even, uh, you absorb more than you, you know, you're absorbing stuff. More than you understand. or you Yeah, know, yeah, like, or, or know what to call it, right? Right, right. Yeah, no, I think that he definitely absorbed this stuff just kind of subconsciously. It was just, it's all around him growing up. Mm-hmm. in texas you know i mean and i think that being the 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 uh virtuoso that he was i mean he just kind of picked it up learned how to do it knew it was fun knew people you know responded to it and started to work it in you know yeah crazy um all right well we should keep on moving on we get about three more songs uh i'll be there but that's another one where you can tell that he just called it out at the session yeah or started singing it and goes, you guys know this song? And they're like, oh, yeah, sort of. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Boom. Because it's loose. You can hear like people are, people are a little like scrambling around <laughs> during it. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like a live on, on the bandstand kind of thing, you know? Right. But yeah, the I fact that what... there's steel guitar, mandolin, and dobro on it, and accordion, and piano. No, and organ. Yeah, it was like... There's a lot of people in the room during that song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there are. But as as it is with a lot of this record, I mean, a lot of this record's got a lot of instrumentation. Just crazy. Big, big sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll be there, though. I didn't really have anything that I wanted to cover with this song. It's kind of like another love song. It seems like there's a lot of love songs on this record. Well, you know, I mean, the history of music is probably more love songs than any other kind of songs. Sure, and I don't find anything wrong with them, but I don't like to ask yeah. people about their love life or anything like that, so I tend to skip them. <laughs> <laughs> I've, well, I've learned. I le- learned not to go down that road. Yeah, uh, well, it ends up being ultimately boring, uh, you know, I, I, I feel, you know. It, uh, yeah, it depends. It, it can be. It can also be a little, like, uh, kind of, uh, um, what's the, embarrassing. Yeah. <clears throat> Sometimes. I mean, like, you know, it, depending on, you, on what you want to divulge, you know. If you're doing it right, yeah. <laughs> if you're doing it right, you shouldn't have any worries. It should be should be very good. You have nothing nothing but good things to say. But <laughs> exactly, um, that's not, not. I don't know. I can't speak for everybody. I don't. <laughs> I don't like to get into it. That's good. So um so then the next song would be hard way. Yeah, what a hard way to go. That is like, Hmm. that sounds like a hit record to me. That should have been a single. Um, I love that. What a hard way to go. I I don't know what it's about, really. You say yes, I say no. I I don't really know what it means, but 
Yeah. The yeah. groove and the melody of that song and that horn chart is just so good. Um, it is. It's a good one. I do, I do like this one too. It's a short one too. Yep. That it's, probably helps. Yeah, it's like a two-minute song. Mm-hmm. And it's got it's just all energy and and just really great. Yeah, uh, yeah, and also on that you know that horn chart is definitely a Mexican Mexican kind of thing. You know, so that's like a funky groove, like R and B kind of groove, but with a with like a Mexican horn chart on top. Mm. Um, you know, when you have two tenor saxes and a trumpet uh, playing that line, that's a very san antonio kind of thing yeah yeah i can i can see this in a few different ways so like doug doug's own challenging uh doug's own challenge mixing so many different styles of music constantly throughout each record you know um that's you know i think i take that out of this as far as like the hard way like because he's kind of like making it harder for himself as we've kind of discussed earlier do you feel like you've taken the hard way for your career as well I wouldn't say that, uh, not really, because the hard way for me would have been uh, to compromise and be disappointed by the results. Hmm. So the knocks were worth it. You know, I was completely broke until I was 40. I mean, I was really living, you know, below the poverty line until I was 40. And then I got a job, uh, you know, I was hired to be a composer for Third Rock from the Sun, which I didn't even know was going to pay that well. I just did it because it sounded interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And then when the first check came in, I was like, okay, th- this must be a different Ben Vaughn. Like, I've never seen a check this big. Like, they must be mistaken. And, uh, and they kept coming in. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm actually making money, like real money. Yeah. Uh, but, but before that, uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, well, actually, when I was a teenager, my, my dad was not really, um, he wasn't a creative guy. He was a working class guy. And he thought that, entertainers and musicians were were uh people who who really didn't want to work for a living and that's why they became entertainers and musicians you know <laughs> he he didn't have any he didn't have much respect for it and uh uh he told me when i was a teenager he said it you know i told him that i wanted to have a career in music i want to be a musician and he goes well if you want to be a musician be prepared to be broke for the rest of your life yeah and i was I took them literally, and so I started preparing. <laughs> yeah, and so you're 40 and broke, and you're like, yeah, well, this is what I asked for. Yeah, I'm making the music that I love, and this is the price you pay for that, apparently, and I'm okay with that. I get it, you know? Right. And uh, so I wouldn't call it hard. Hard would have been uh, not doing it the way I, I did it, I think. Hmm. Yeah, go against your own uh, intuition. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, that's great. Uh, so the last song, Nitty Gritty. That was it released as a single. Oh, okay. This album, and it's a great, really great record. Um, the guitar solo in it is just unbelievable. Like in the middle of the song, when, when the horns go banat, 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 and all of a sudden, bam, 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 this really clean Fender Telecaster sound. You know, Doug just really 
hitting those strings hard and you know bending the nose and getting a twang out of it that's a huge influence on my guitar playing mm. i uh when this record was out i was uh i played along to it you know yeah. and i i can imitate doug imitating uh it's really funny when somebody asked me to imitate t-bone walker i can't but i can imitate doug Som imitating t-bone walker because <laughs> that's how i discovered t-bone walker i discovered a lot of music through doug because i would go wow ain't that loving you that's a cover. I wonder who did it originally. And I'd find Bobby Blue Bland or I would, you know, any of this stuff, you know. Uh, right. Uh, and I love uh, Nitty Gritty uh, down in New York City. I'm not sure what it's about. I guess it's about going to New He might have written it when he was in New York hmm. to do those sessions. And, you know, maybe it's like we're going to get down to the Nitty Gritty and go to the studio, man. You know, it might, mm -hmm. I'm sure it wasn't any deeper than that because Doug was a guy who uh he wasn't profound uh he seemed like he really um was an instinctual person yeah and uh in, in, instinctual creator and he had a little bit of that hippie element you know like hey man let's just let it all hang out you know oh yeah yeah and nitty-gritty kind of uh i think it was a good choice as a single now that i think about it because it it also has that mexican feel to it you know, yeah, with the still horns. Yeah, it has a little bit of it. <clears throat> has a little bit and of a, it. That's fun. Dun, 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 and he's playing Bajo Sexo. Dun, 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 dun. Boy, I've listened, to, I've listened to this record a lot of times because I can replay every <laughs> every note in my mind. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so I, so I feel like the nitty-gritty in this song is kind of like, uh, like Doug speaking kind of about his own style to a degree. Like, um, so there's a, there's a line in the song, right? Um, well, the, and then I'm paraphrasing this because it's not, it's not accurate, but, uh, well, the movie star from the city, he took away my nitty gritty, you know? Yeah. And like, it's, it sounds like he's kind of like, kind of longing to be back home and like, like his style of like music and the way he performs and all like him, just him, his, his being is, is nitty gritty. It's down and dirty, you know? That's, you know, that's, that's possible. It, it could be the opposite of what I was saying, where he was missing Texas while he was in New York City, you know, right. yeah. and maybe he, maybe he felt that like uh, going back to Texas was getting back to the nitty gritty. Um, yeah, 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 I mean, I, I, I never, you know, it's one of those things, this is, it's weird because I'm a real lyric fanatic, but when it comes to Doug, I'm not because well, yeah, the music, the music and, and his voice, his ability to sing, you know, he, he literally could sing the phone book, you know, and I would buy it. Uh, yeah you know right uh, well you know. we'll see and, and I, so i think that it, it's true i think this is kind of like a tribute to to texas i mean he did that often obviously throughout his career but i think that this is just one of those those things it's a nitty gritty is essentially his style and it's stymed in in where he grew up and and you know texas in general that's pro that's probably a more accurate take on it than mine yeah well, hey it's it's all up to interpretation that's just what i pulled out of it but um, could you name anything that was an influence on your style, musically or otherwise, that was acquired from where you grew up? Oh, definitely doo-wop, uh, big time. Oh, yeah. Big time. I, uh, uh, growing up in Philadelphia, there was a disc jockey. Uh, he's still around, actually. Jerry Blavitt, the geeter with the heater. He was uh -huh. on a small AM radio station in Camden, New Jersey, right near me. Uh, I could actually see he was at the top of City Hall. The radio station was owned by the city, and it was on the top floor of City Hall in Camden, which I could see from my house. 
when I was mm. growing up. And he was up there every night playing playing uh, really obscure, his own record collection of really obscure doo-wop, rhythm and blues, vocal groups, and and uh, taking requests and dedications. And I would listen to him every night. And Patti Smith is a huge Geeter fan, too. She's spoken about him in the past. Daryl Hall talks about him. Um, anybody who grew up in the Philly area during that time, Todd yeah. Rundgren t- talks about the Geeter. Um, oh, okay. And he played... He only played the records he wanted to play. He he bought airtime so he didn't have to play what anyone told him to play. And then he would sell advertising during his airtime. He was like the inventor of the infomercial in some ways, you know. <laughs> and uh, and he put out oldies albums and he had record hops every night in the city and in, in the suburbs and everywhere. And everything that I, when I first started playing music, um, as a musician playing dances, like I was telling you earlier, that the um, the old style was still popular uh, when I first began playing. You know, starting out as a drummer, and then eventually moving on to guitar and singing. When I played high school dances and battle of the bands and everything, the best way to win the audience over was to play like oldies you know you get a nickel i'll get a dime we'll go out and buy some wine drinking wine you know that kind of stuff you know mm-hmm. and the geeter the geeter played that stuff on his show every night and um the first time i ever played guitar in public i played a song called sheba by johnny and the hurricanes and okay this was like 1970 and i'm playing a song from 1959 and the reason is that the geeter played that song every night on the radio and everybody in my neighborhood knew it. So if I played Sheba, I had I was, had a chance of getting a better reaction than if I played something by Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know. <laughs> and so it, I'm definitely uh, uh, similar to Doug in that sense that uh, being on stage at an early age and and uh, getting the reaction and and getting people dancing was the beginning of my my uh, my you know my career as a musician really. Yeah. Interesting. But, so, for, so I just love that you, you, you make this parallel as well that like, you know, um, well, well, I'm kind of trying to tie it together is that where you grew up and, and all of and this influence of doo-wop music on you through through the radio, similar to him being in Texas and like having a lot of this uh, this Mexican um, uh, originating music, like because I still don't know what to call it. It's a conjuntos or it's mariachi or it's uh, Tejas or... Norteño, yeah, whatever Norteño, you call it. Yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Uh, it kind of just, just seeped into what he was doing too, like just kind of subconsciously, I feel. Definitely. And it's really interesting because when, um, you know, I've played with musicians all over the country and all over the world, and there's a, a certain part of me that they don't quite understand yeah, uh, because I can't explain it, you know, um, because it's based on what was what I absorbed and what I was playing when I was very young, uh, like my roots. Mm. And uh, when you're that young, uh, you can't really explain your roots. There, there are some things there are no words for. You know, so it's all about a feel you have for music. And the feel around me was dance-oriented and rhythm-oriented and very soulful stuff. Mm. Yeah, cool, man. Yeah, that's why everyone's story is different, and that's why I love I love talking to people about it. Yeah, 
Yeah, me too. I, I could talk about music all day long, which I think we're doing at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. We're, 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 we're going to wrap this up right now. But um, but yeah, uh, Ben, it's been such a great opportunity to speak with you, man. I'm, I'm such so glad that you, uh, you, you did this. Yeah, I'll get a link to the new album over to you so you can hear, you know, um, so you can hear it. The new record? I, yeah, I would love yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you'll like it. It's, uh, it moves along, uh, you know, it, it changes styles. It moves around and uh, sure. it, it's, a, it's a pretty, um, it's a comfortable sounding record. I, 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 when I listen to it back, I'm like, wow, I really, found, I really sound comfortable on this, which is nice, you know? Yeah, sure it is. Yeah, and, and I'm a, I actually have a pretty eclectic blend of uh, music that I like as well. Um, I typically like kind of sad bastard music, kind of crying your beer stuff. Um, but then I go to extremes and listen to like extreme like noise rock music too. So just a little bit of everything is great. Yeah, I mean, oh, I was... that's why I wanted to ask you about because you because I was asking you know what record you would want to choose and you gave me a choice of two. The other one being the Stooges Funhouse. Yeah, yeah. So like, what? Like, why? How do you make make this comparison? Like, how how do you be like? Oh, it's either this one or this one. Like the, these two are so such different records. Um, well, again, uh, the influence they had on me, um, I bought Funhouse in 1970 when it came out. Um, I, it was the summer of 1970 and I was cutting lawns for money and I had a $5 bill in my pocket and I went over to this record store slash head shop in, in my neighborhood. And when I walked in, this guy was Playing, the guy behind the counter was playing a record that just like sounded amazing. So I, you know, went up to him and I asked him what it was, and he said, "It's the Stooges' second album." So mm-hmm. I said, well, "I said, well, here." I pulled out my five dollar bill and I said, "I want to buy it." And he goes, "Well, I'm not going to sell it to you because it's the only copy we have here." And I said, "You have to sell it to me. This is a record store." And he goes, "No, I don't have to do anything. I don't want to do." And we got into an, an argument, you know. Huh. And finally, I convinced him to sell it to me, and I took it home, and I probably listened to it oh, thousands of times. Kind of like, you know, this album here, you know, Texas yeah. Tornado. Um, and uh, I just, that record is just one of the most unbelievable records ever. And I, I know every note, you know, I could replay that whole album, every note in my mind. Right. And, the, and the funny thing is, oh, maybe 30 years later, I'm playing a gig in Philadelphia and this guy comes up to me and says, do you remember me? I said, no. And he goes, I'm the guy who sold you that Stooges album. And I'm going, oh, wow. And he goes, yeah. I'm still mad because it took a month for us to get a second copy of that record in. <laughs> yeah, huh? That's so weird because it was such a like a, a, a unappreciated record. I mean, no nobody liked them when they when they first started, and then even by the time Funhouse came out, they still weren't like no one really cared. You know, no, and, he, they, and, and, and they could hardly even tour because they were falling apart as a band. Right, you know? and it was such weird music. Like, like you know, everyone that I've from from the people that I've spoken with. That record gets brought up a lot, but um, but it's just it it's just a testament to that record and like how important it is to people. But it, but I think it's funny because what I know about you and your background in music, I'm just like that's not the record I would have assumed. Kind of came around and like blew your mind. Yeah, you know, it's it has soul to it, you know, and it's also alive in the studio performance. There's no uh, no production on that record, you know. Right. Yeah, <laughs> Iggy's singing through a PA system in the same room with the band, you know. Um, and he's dancing around and they're just doing their show, you know? Right. Yes. Yeah. And um, 
I don't know what it is. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of garage rock and Paul Revere and the Raiders and, you know, the kinks and all that. And it, it wasn't that different to me. It just, it was a louder version of the kinks, you know, <clears throat> you know, riff rock, you know, right, right. And, and, a, and a guy who I preferred uh, over Jim Morrison, Jim Morrison seemed pretentious to me, but Iggy didn't, you know, Oh, yeah. uh, but the same kind of thing, like, whoa, you know, that kind of crazy, you know. Yeah, actually, you know, Jim Morrison being an influence on Iggy, actually. Oh, huge influence. Yeah. 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 And but Iggy was better. And, and Iggy had a sense of humor about himself. That's what I liked about it. Um, oh, okay. The minute I heard it, I just, um, you know, I mean, that record is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like Radar Eyes. I'm not Radar Eyes. TVI. TVI. And, uh, Loose, um, twat, twat, five by that's what I've learned. It's, it's about, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, really, really great record. And, um, I mean, you know, certain things hit you, and you, and again, like I think I, punk rock didn't exist yet, so I didn't know what, what I was hearing. And even heavy metal didn't even exist yet as a, as a genre, that term was not used yet, right in 1970 so that record just sounded like uh, if you took the seeds or the king's men and put them through bigger amps and had a crazier singer mm. or surfing wild. bird by the trash men was my favorite 45 you know when i was a kid you know oh, yeah that's pretty wild so there wasn't it wasn't that much of a leap you know weird so weird but amazing uh yeah. and, and it's just it's nice to know that you you like that record and you know maybe one day we can meet and talk about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i would love that yeah man well you know honestly someday i hope to meet you out there in the real world and uh and get to know, maybe know your record collection a little bit better yeah come out to the desert i would love to i have a trailer on my property you can stay in oh okay can i bring my screaming kids <laughs> uh i'll get back i'll get back to you on that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're always the, the the wet blanket on, on my my situation they're, they're like yeah no don't bring those things why would you want those things around here i did mention the slow tempo and the quiet uh, yeah. aspect of the desert right <laughs> yeah yeah well, you give them you give them a tablet and they're good they're very quiet okay good <laughs> all right then well hey it's been great speaking with you Best, best of luck with the record. I, I'm sure that they'll all sell out, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing it. All right, man. It was great, great talking to you. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. You too. With nights that never end Asking Asking for a friend Vinyl and Vision is a psychic static production. Theme song written and performed by Jeff Robbins of Asking 123 Astronaut. Asking for a friend whose heart's in trouble again. I wouldn't know about such things.